Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Eamon Ore Hiron. The Anderson Collection at Stanford University is presenting Eamon Ore Hiron Non Plus Ultra through February 20th. The exhibition features paintings Ore Hiron has made while on a Stanford residency, installed with works from the Anderson's collection. It was curated by the artist and Jason Linetsky. Next month, the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver opens a survey of Ore Hiron's 20-year career titled Eamon Ore Hiron, Competing with Lightning. The exhibition, which was curated by Miranda Lash, will be on view from February 16th to May 22nd. Ore Hiron's work joins histories, geographies, and abstraction as a means by which to explore the layered past and present of the Americas. He's been featured in solo shows and two-person shows at LaxArt and the 18th Street Art Center in Los Angeles, the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, and in group shows at SF MoMA, the Hammer Museum, Ballroom Marfa, the Whitney Museum of American Art, and more. On the second segment, Ray Johnson with Caitlin Haskell. But first, Eamon Ore Hiron, after the break. Explore the first U.S. museum retrospective of the pioneering artist Harry Bertoia at the Nasher Sculpture Center. See more than 100 works of sculpture, design, and jewelry that influenced culture, both at the mid-century and now. In complement to the exhibition, don't miss an installation from pioneering sound artist Olivia Block, which utilizes Bertoia's sound sculptures. Learn more and get your tickets at nashersculpturecenter.org. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. The Scene Changes, sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art, presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Isamu Noguchi, each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. The exhibition follows sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinin, and Amanda Ross Ho. The Scene Changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. And we're back. Eamon Ore Hiron, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with a work you made in 2010. Like, I don't think there's like any one way of establishing a beginning point in your work because you've worked in so many different media. But for the purposes of this conversation, <laughs> let's start with a 2010 work called Untitled Oho. It's a screen print on canvas. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Features a central portraiture bust-like form centered on the horizontal canvas 
and two oval and roundish forms on either side of the semi-head, and straight-ish-ish lines emanate from the center of the head. And it's it seems to me like a work that introduces, or at least is very early, in a lot of things that you've spent the last 12 years exploring. So what is this 2010 picture about and what informed it? This work was done at a time that I had been cutting record sleeves. So if you look at the piece, you'll notice, you know, like a mouth in the lower right corner, you'll see kind of an eye. There's all these different little elements almost looking like collaged. And what I was doing is taking records and cutting into them with an exacto knife and then splitting them open. So the centerpiece would be the album's spine, basically. And so this one was based on a Grace Jones album. And then using that in kind of like a polka approach, kind of using little bits of it to kind of piece together a different image. This face ends up kind of appearing with this center emanating rays. And a lot of these come out of when I was doing a ton of DJing. And so I had a lot of albums, a lot of throwaway albums or albums that didn't make the cut, I guess. No pun intended, but so, and I would spray paint and, and use lots of different mediums. I don't think I knew a lot about like the materiality of paint in terms of like what can go on top of what, but that's what this series comes out of. One of the paintings that came out of the series was later used as an album cover for a reissue of a French early kind of noise band called In Eternum Alum, I believe, A-L-U-M. And that is of the full Grace Jones kind of cut, remashed, mashed up image. And actually a really wonderful artist here in LA, Gary Garay, he helped me do these large scale silk screens because these are pretty big. These are probably, I think about like, maybe this one's like four feet tall by like six feet wide, something like that. I was just going to say they have a force field that seems to reach out to the viewer from the, from the wall. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And a lot of the sides were painted to give a little bit of a glow. And what was interesting about this show, I was also playing with text at the time. And so there are pieces from this time period in the same exhibition at Steve Turner's when he was down on Wilshire that are with spray paint and text and kind of freeform cutout text that were referencing Celtic origin myths, Mayan origin myths, and Aztec origin myths. So a lot of these works, it was kind of a way to kind of weave together my interest in music and the, and the visual language of music as well. And in that, you know, you, you get lyric, you get storytelling and, and, and all of that. And if you're familiar with my work prior to this, like of late 90s and early 2000s, it was very different, you know? And so in some ways, I think these works in a lot of ways was like an exercise in loosening up, breaking away from a lot of the kind of formality or formal structures that I had kind of developed for myself. Yeah, this th- this work is four years after you finished your MFA at UCLA. And at UCLA, you know, I think I was kind of really questioning my role as an artist and and as a painter. I think I was coming to the end of a certain kind of narrative that I was exploring in my work. And at that time, I made good friends with Brenna Youngblood, 
who is an incredible collage artist. She probably inspired me quite a bit with this work. And Joshua Astor, another amazing painter, and a series of other people and people that were not associated with UCLA either, that we ended up becoming a band called OHO. So that's kind of like, I think my experience at UCLA was branching out and and exploring these ideas of like performance. And, you know, I, I kind of viewed that time period as a time to germinate other ideas and ways of expressing myself. And a bunch of those ways are, are absolutely in this picture, the the circles that will become important soon thereafter and that we'll be talking about in a moment. These dominant, strong, muscular, vertical lines. And then also in this, in this picture are these intensities of color, some of which suffuse uh, an entire side of the canvas, some of which are contained in a single line, something else that will become prominent in your work later. I want to skip forward to 2012, because before you would pare down to your, your, your imagery to these lines and circles, you, your work would get rather more Baroque. So in 2012, you did a show at LA's 18th Street Art Center that featured painting and sculpture and music and references to music within sculpture and references to sculpture within music. I mean, it was a show that had everything under the sun. And as I... <laughs> prepared to talk with you and was reviewing the, the the stuff that was in the 18th Street Art Center show, I realized the better way to go about it was to ask about it this way. So my first question was a question about the formal stuff going on in a, in a particular picture. But as we get into, into after 2010, it seems to me you're finding the best way or ways to address Peru and your family history in your work. Is there something to that? Is there something in the 2010s that got you thinking about Peru and your family? I know that like the genesis of that exhibition, kind of obsessed with this idea of like the motorcycle diaries, Che Guevara. And I was into this idea of like this eternal space that to me Peru represents sometimes as kind of an endless type of space that in one point lives in my memory. And and I'm sure this is like the same for a lot of children of immigrants or people from other places. You have these places that are kind of frozen in your, your memory and kind of idealized on certain levels, but then also kind of even your own kind of exotification of your own memories, like the complete definition of nostalgia. But I was also into thinking of like those original motorcycle diaries are Che Guevara, like being exposed to the harsh realities of like rural life in Latin America. And it was kind of strange because I had come across this blog of like, I was like, hmm, I'm really curious. What are people's, like, if I were to like look at what a motorcycle diary is of 2010, like, are there people out there on motorcycles? What are they doing in Peru? What, you know, what, what is their view of Peru? And sure enough, there's like, all these interesting motorcycle diaries, basically blog posts of people riding their motorcycles through South America. And I was really curious about the imagery that they were coming across and their impressions. So there were some really amazing photos of these mining towns near where my dad is from called Morococha. And not just Morococha, there's a lot of different mining towns at the high altitude parts of Chile and Bolivia and stuff like that. And what I really loved about these images that I kept finding was 
they would always kind of be posed with their motorcycle in the middle of a plaza. And in the plaza, they had these like, you know, statues dedicated to the miners and to the workers. And they were really amazing. You know, they were very much like probably produced in the 80s, maybe some in the 90s. So they were this like hybrid blend of like figurative forms, you know, two hands coming out of the ground with chains being broken. But then they were always placed on these like ultra modernist kind of plinths or they'd have some really interesting kind of modernist forms around them. And so I kind of was thinking about like that, that's kind of, I know it's really very roundabout and long winded, but that's kind of the travel that I took in arriving for, to the work for that exhibition. So that's why I think there's so much in that show. There's so many different directions going on in that show. And, Quite honestly, I also kind of really thought of that show as an incubator, you know, because it, it was done in tandem with a residency at the 18th Street Center. So the work that came out of that was the show was called Man in the Plaza. And open tuning was part of the show as well, which is like when you strum a guitar and you have it tuned to a single chord. So I was kind of interested in open tuning of specifically of Peru, of like where my dad is from. There's a very specific type of music from his region and music that I had been taught when I was young to play on the guitar. And these ideas of memory and these ideas of like, what are these like kind of images out there in the world of that place? To type in Morococha in Google and see what comes up and to kind of do this traverse, if I can't travel there right now, let me see what other people are seeing. And, and what are what are the images that are coming up on this search? So there's a number of paintings that are dedicated to those works, which I don't know if they're even online, but like, you know, a guy on a motorcycle in front of these two arms with chains being broken and, and a number of other ones with miners on these different platforms kind of, you know, doing different elements of their daily work. Yeah, it's this period when you are throwing 83 things up against a wall and they're they're all ending up in paintings. And and the, the the point I'm being very slow to getting to make is that there is an a Polkian, a Sigmar Polkian baroqueness and layering within these pictures. And yet somehow within about two years or a year, I guess a year after that, you have your first show in New York City. And all of that busyness and depth and layering and size, really, and, and, and just enormity of canvas. All of it's gone. I mean, just like snap, snap your fingers and it's gone. So what happened? Well, so the piece in the center, the centerpiece of that exhibition at 18th Street was the man in the plaza. And it was, I guess you could describe it kind of like, you know, a shade divider that would kind of stand at a zigzag I don't know what you call those, I guess just like a space divider. So the centerpiece was a sculpture that was a divider that kind of zigzagged. And at the end, it turned into the face of a man and it had a cigar, which was actually a copper pipe. And the surface of the sculpture was all corkboard. And so I was thinking about, speaking of that layering, I was thinking, okay, I want to create a sculpture. There were a number of sculptural pieces in that exhibition, one of which went to the Nikhil Pushain show that you're mentioning, the guitar. So 
in that piece, there was cork board that I would then attach paintings to, to try to tell this kind of story about, it was inspired by one of these towns, one of these works in the middle of the town that I had been mentioning about before. And it was an art show in this town in the, it, that my father's from that, where it was just showcased local painting, you know, and it was, it was really interesting. It was like, looked like a piece that could be in any gallery or museum it had just really interesting images because it's folk art. It was people from around that region showing their painting. And I was really curious by this like way to display painting in, in a plaza. And so for me, like this sculpture contained a number of paintings that then ended up kind of becoming the genesis of the works that went on to Nikhil Bouchain's. And then exploring that further has really resulted in the abstract language that I speak now in my paintings. Yeah, there's one there's one particular painting on that corkboard that is recognizable as where you would go. The other is less so. <laughs> there is a hand, an irregular a hand on a teardrop-shaped chemistry lab beaker shaped thing coming out of what might be the eye of the guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, we'll I, have an I, image some, on mantopcast.com. <laughs> okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, uh, oh, in a copper, I actually like engraved a copper plate, just like the same kind of plates that they use for doing etchings and stuff like that. And, and on it, I had written a poem. So the, so <laughs> this is very complicated, but this whole kind of idea of like the plaza, a man in the plaza, a man in the plaza sits and plays a guitar, you know, and then thinking about the guitar as this like abstract form that is so well represented in early modernist art. And then later digging deeper into what the guitar is, you know, and its first mass production was like very much, it was the first instrument kind of mass produced for people of lower means and how that ended up changing the music that we all know. And in Spain, even like flamenco music became kind of the identity of Spain because the guitar, the guitar was spread all throughout the country. And then images of like Arlo Guthrie with, you know, this machine kills fascists and just ruminating on all of this and thinking about this one specific open tuning that was I don't know if the word endemic is the right word, but is very, very, very much specifically associated with this region that my father's from, this type of guitar that I had been playing. I was interested in, kind of in these ideas of like, I guess, identity too, you know, like how identity is potentially formed by the earth, not even by us, our specific location. You know, why does the blues come from Mississippi? Why didn't it come from Vermont? These type of ideas, tossing them around. And I think in terms of the painting, like, I think the painting that you're referring to is like a head that's on the corkboard. Yeah, it's, it's a really small little painting, maybe like 10 or 12 or 14 inches square. Yeah. And so that that piece was really just like, I I wanted to play with this, following all of the, this exploration and like improvisation as well. And I believe that painting was, you know, a lot of those paintings were made at my table in my kitchen using plates, cups, 
different things to kind of create the forms. You mean the circles? The circles are coming right out of utensils and such? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so I think like a lot of that ends up still translating some of that idea of layering that happens in the earlier works that you're referring to, that kind of playing with layering and, and what forms start to take shape. It still exists. It's just in a, in a much more stripped down, bold kind of form. By 2013, you're trusting the shapes and the colors and letting them do the work. Whereas for the previous five years, you'd been feeling the need to do all of it at once. Do you have any sense or memory of what got you to trust simplicity? It's kind of like when you find the place you belong, there's something about a familiarity with it. And I think what I do remember feeling very at home with the simplicity of a pencil, color, a, a canvas or linen, you know, and you could almost just, I could put it in a backpack and you could send me anywhere in the world and I would still, that was me. That was my identity. And that felt really liberating in some ways, instead of being tethered to like a ton of things that I need. And so I think that I do definitely remember feeling very liberated by that. And I think in some ways, like that 18th Street exhibition was like a really good way of, like you said, throwing everything at the wall. It was just this kind of, you need these kind of moments, I think, in order to really like agitate what your concepts are doing. Sometimes the entropy of the, your concepts need to be like pushed up again and thrown all over the place and follow each direction. And I think that that was also like an impulse that I had from being an improvisational musician. It also feels like this is either the moment you discover Latin American geometric abstraction from mid-century or the moment that you maybe had, didn't find it, but fell in love with it. Yeah, definitely. And, and it, it, it really wasn't even like the great masters of Latin American you know, geometric abstraction. It was these strange sculptures in the middle of these towns that were probably done after the agrarian reform that was like this big kind of the central government's like in you know in an effort to modernize and to honor the workers you know we will bring in this like modern clean cool sculpture to your town we will honor you by putting you on top of it so it wasn't even like so much of a an exposure to latin american geometric abstraction through scholarship in Argentinian or Venezuelan painting or anything. It was part of that <laughs> motorcycle diaries that I mentioned before, my Google motorcycle diaries. It was this kind of really, like I was very interested in, because in Latin America, I do feel like there there is such a strong association with utopian, it definitely during the agrarian reform, especially like in the 60s, you know, this effort to be like attaching it to a social language, but at the same time, kind of pushing things from the past out away and kind of trying to move things into this future, you know, which is, I think, a different, a different take, you know. And so for me, it was, that's, that, that I think, I think you're totally right. I think that's like when I was definitely like something clicked in that. And I was very interested in that idea. So I want to spend a moment on this pared down geometric 
language that emerges in your work in 2013 and that you have continued to expand and refine simultaneously ever since. It was interesting to hear you mention that one way you got started in developing it was using coffee cups and plates and such and, and, and using the circles and such that those forms offered. But another thing that's in the work starting in 2013 are these really straight lines sometimes in triangles, sometimes in, in parallelograms, sometimes in whatever. Really strong lines, really pared down lines. And I think maybe at first you're not using tape or rulers to create them, but soon you would be. How did you define how you would leave marks on canvas, either with pencil or with paint, either in pencil or with that you would fill in with paint? Yeah, I mean, I, I never use tape, so it's Even still... Now? Even now, yeah. So it's just rulers now? It's all rulers. The circles are one of the main templates for most of my circles is the first album that I made back in 2008. It's the dub plate for my my first DJ Lengua album. And yeah, no, I mean, I think in some ways is a little bit of like a challenge to myself to see how close the hand can replicate perfection on that level, but also how you can really fudge it a lot. If you zoom in on uh, one of these canvases on the linen, you know, the warp and the weft is like each point is almost like a pixel and you can follow the thread of the weaving when, when you're making vertical lines or horizontal lines, you know, diagonal lines are the more difficult ones just like a weaver would find diagonal ones without stair-stepping. And so in some ways, like it, it starts to relate to textile in that sense. You know, my, my approach to the painting does take on this, this kind of echo of what somebody that would be doing weaving at a loom would do. And so, yeah, I, I've never done tape. I've been tempted to. And I've been asked about it, <laughs> but I, I don't like how it comes out. Let, let me I jump like... in real quick. There is a color blue you use that is very close to the color of blue painters tape. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I think that's called ocean blue. <laughs> oh, and the other thing too is the paints are all, I don't mix my own. There's very rarely do I mix my own paint. I mostly use paint out of the jar. I don't know if that fits in a little bit with the ethos of like, send me out with a pencil and canvas and, you know, wherever there's paint stored, that will be where I could have a studio. But I don't mix my own paints. You know, it's been a long time since I do that. I mean, I do it for my classes. I should teach my students that. But And so there is something that that's probably the most mechanical <laughs> element to, to my practice. I feel like tape and those type of those edging techniques for my work make it they they take away the emotion I think which I like the emotion in my paintings you know that that I try to emanate in my work it's not abstraction for abstraction's sake no and there are moments where at first glance so not these 2013 works we're talking about but later on where from 50 feet away 75 feet away, the eye sees the distant painting and understands or assumes it to be symmetrical. 
But then as you get to the painting, as you physically get to the painting, you know, six inches from it, you realize that the viewer was deceived. <laughs> Definitely. And, and I, I mean, that is awesome because like it really puts painting back into the physical realm. We live in this virtual realm so much now that it's this thing that still needs to be experienced physically. There's one more painting in, in from 2013 I want to ask about. It is the most atypical painting that I know of that you made that year. It is kind of, uh, while the other paintings are lines and circles and parallelograms and triangles, this one is squiggly handsy paint with a yellow dot and a green dot. It is almost kind of the love child of Joan Miro and Eve Klein with a bobber one straight white line at the bottom of the painting. It is light years from anything else that you showed that year, and indeed that you would show thereafter, like for years thereafter. So what the heck? <laughs> I think as, I, I mean, in some ways, I think it was maybe to to kind of disrupt the solidness of, like to, to actually show the energy of a, of a paint stroke. I think in some ways I always have, there's some part of my personality that tries to subvert when I get really comfortable with something like to try to subvert that in some way. And I, and I'm sure that those work function on that level. I, I haven't continued those at all. Those were kind of just momentary, but um, I do have, I do have a piece here in the studio. That's probably from 2013 or 12. It's the largest one in that series. And it's about six feet tall by five feet wide. Yeah. The painting I was raising is 12 by 10 inches. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, they're mostly are really small. And a lot of those, what I would do is kind of make a brush stroke on a piece of plastic sheeting. I was working stretching canvases here in L.A. at a stretcher bar company. And I would sit with all that, you know, extra plastic that we had from wrapping pieces. I would do some brush strokes and then I, as it was wet, press it against the linen. And so it was kind of this reverse or this like, you know, flipped brush stroke. Almost like a monotype. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then I would kind of use that to kind of inform like where I want to place the solid piece. The painting I'm talking about is called No Shackles. We'll have it on manpodcast.com. The one other painter that's within it that really jumped out at me is Sam Francis. It's the same blue. It's the same blue from his blue balls. So in 2013, you, you begin to settle into what will become your language. And in 2015, you've begun to complicate it, especially with a certain color or type of reflective gold paint. What is that gold paint and why did it come into the work? It's flash paint and it is iridescent. And, you know, I think like the beauty in being a painter and being a maker of objects is being exposed to material and letting the material kind of tell you certain things to inform you about, you know, what it is you might do with it. And at the time I was living in New York, I just moved out there. My son was about to be born and I came across the gold and I really loved this relationship it had with the linen it kind of immediately pushed the linen back a few feet. It really does. It still does. It must be said. It still yeah. does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and all of a sudden, that depth that it gave on this ultra flat surface 
started to all of a sudden speak to ideas of architecture and internal architecture too, like emotional architecture. And I, I've spoken about this previously when asked about this series, but at the time I had been I had lost my mother. She she actually died in Peru while while on vacation there. And I went down there to deal with all the things that you have to do when that happens. And my son had just been born. He was a month old. And so when I got back in the studio in New York, you know, it's just kind of like, uh, you know, sit down and just stare, you know, for the first time in like a month or so after having gone through all of that. And I think in a lot of ways, the gold spoke to me in this way that, you know, really demanded attention to a body of work. I think the more I explored gold and its metaphysical qualities or, or its relation to the way that we think about material and and history and all of our histories, like not just in Latin America, but, you know, all over the world, gold has been a funerary material. So I, I think there is some kind of relationship to that experience in that specific time that when I came back into the studio, you know, it, I think it, it also centered me in this way to pursue a body of work that was going to be consistent. Like, you know, I, I said how I had said earlier, you know, I, I, I have a personality that as an artist that tends to subvert myself when I get comfortable. And so it was actually like resisting that. Here is this material this has taught you that's going to teach you about what it means to dedicate yourself to a specific language and explore that language and see how much more language comes out of it, I guess. So that to me is kind of the, my relationship to the gold. We talked a little earlier about diagonal lines in your work and how they came to be important, especially as kind of testing yourself and playing against the weave and the weft of the linen on, on which you were painting. I think the first work of yours that explodes those lines into dominating forces is um, a mural you made for the Hammer Museum's 2018 Made in L.A. local ennial, local-ish ennial, which is diagonal lines going every which way. I would think that as a painter, the bigger you go with diagonal lines, the harder they are to work with, just because they're so dominant. Were you immediately comfortable with the way these diagonal lines were working in your work, and thus it was easy to scale them up to room size as you did at the Hammer, or am I totally off on a wild goose chase? No, I it, it wasn't easy. It was I had to rely on some really basic geometry and things that I like. At, when you're working at that scale and you're standing in front of like a 25 foot wall, I think we had talked a little earlier or before the the interview about kind of Euclidean space, you know. And so, you know, I think that diagonal lines in that form, I think. I knew that they would give the viewer a sense of a deeper space, like so that atrium that you're walking into. At the hammer, the ground floor, just inside from Wilshire Boulevard, yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that I was the most preoccupied by was people feeling kind of dominated by this thing. And to me, what I was much more, my desire was to have people feel lifted up by it and feel 
you know, a positive feeling, you know, and, and like as if it was opening the space more. And so I think those diagonal lines really kind of help do that. Just even on an optical, in an optical sense, they pull you in and they start to kind of, they activate your, your visual senses, you know? And I think I actually have like a really intense stigmatism. And so, you know, they, they're not perfect for me, you know, they, they kind of wobble a little bit, but no, I think, you know, in terms of those diagonal lines and that specific piece, I think like it, it ended up working really well. I think the staircase also helped like the architecture of the staircase also helped kind of this, this idea that you're moving up, your body is physically moving up along with these diagonal lines. And your vantage point is changing as you're going up. I find that in a lot of your work, and this goes for paintings on linen too, that it feels like it's been there forever. And that hammer biennial work, I remember seeing it for the first time thinking, oh, that's might as well have been there 40 years ago. It's just always been there. There's something about, maybe it's the hard edges of so many of your lines, I don't know. Maybe it's that you're playing with a mid-century geometric abstract language it just feels like it's always been there there's um one move you did in that hammer 2018 piece which by the way is called anhelitos negros as you come down the stairs from the hammer you faced a wall where there was this kind of not really a w but a kind of w like bending form bending line and that's a line that has recurred in your work a lot going back really to the 2000 aughts what does that line mean? Where is or where is it from? Why why does it keep coming back? To me, it kind of represents lightning, kind of this like celestial phenomenon, something that you're looking up at. And the and the piece, that specific motif or that wall, that that image, is part of a series that I had started prior to the Infinite Regress, and I was thinking of ways of thinking about celestial bodies that were not seen by European eyes. So like the Southern Cross, which for a very long time was not viewable from the Northern Hemisphere. I think the tilt of the axis has shifted that a little bit, so it does start to appear on the Southern horizon. I'm not totally sure about that. But I liked this idea of a sky that was not seen, was not colonized, I guess, in this sense. And... When thinking about abstraction and, you know, Euclidean space and, and the different forms that are out in space, you know, I thought of that motif because it's split perfectly in the middle and and it kind of could be flipped upside down and be read the same way. So it kind of plays with this notion of like where you are when you're looking at this form and a little bit like Joaquin Torres, like his map of South America flipped upside down. You know, and like this idea of like if we were to take the building and flip it upside down, you could still see the same. It wouldn't it wouldn't alter it so dramatically that it was something radically different. And so those are kind of the ideas behind that motif. And, and those lines kind of they refer they're supposed to evoke the idea of lightning or, you know, something shooting through the sky and give the, the form that that sense of motion that's going on, because that's. At the end of the day, a lot of these forms are alluding to motion and alluding to scale and things moving backwards and forwards and moving behind one another or through one another. 
you know, we've talked about the diagonal lines and we're talking about these lightning recalling forms. And we talked about how you started using circles in the work and where that came from. But we have not talked about why you keep using circles in the work. If they have for you a semiotic meaning or if they have a philosophical source that you find value in returning to. I think that they, in some ways, kind of, they're signifiers of potentially points of view, perspectives. I think this kind of phenomenon, like when you see the moon, if you see the, the if you ever see like a, a blood moon, you know, where you actually get the, the dark side of the moon, you actually see it, or it's kind of lit, lit up with a little bit of shadow, I think, of the earth. All of a sudden, it gives you a sense of where you are. All of a sudden, it gives you this like overwhelming kind of, I get a physical reaction from seeing it almost like a study in scale of like, all of a sudden, I am very much at a different scale than what I thought I was when I was just looking at this sliver of moon. And so I think like these circles in a lot of ways, they're almost like this very like perfect stand in for things that we can project into them, you know, and the fact that they can also kind of illustrate the movement of the form in the painting, they can illustrate, they can kind of dictate your sense of the space within the painting. I think that that's like probably the closest thing to like how I view them. I have like memories in some weird way of like at the time that I started to make the infinite regress work, watching like a full moon on a full moon night, making its way across the sky and encountering a gate in a garden that I was sitting in and just watching it kind of going through the lattice work of that gate and kind of illustrating different elements to the gate's design and holes through the gate. And to me, that's like the closest kind of physical experience that I've had that is almost synonymous with, with what I'm trying to recreate with the painting. We talked about your use of gold earlier. In the new paintings that are on view at the Anderson at Stanford, you bring in a dark, deep, light-sucking, inky black. Really the opposite of the gold. I mean, not that gold has an opposite, but, but pictorially it's pretty close to opposite. Where did that black come from? The pieces that are in the exhibition that are based in the gold paint are kind of in relation to these objects that are in the middle of that room, which are a Conque Panamanian pre-Columbian necklace, a gold Spanish escudo from Peru, and the gold spike, which uh, Leland Stanford used to knock into the transcontinental railway. They're in Promontory, Utah, yeah. Yeah, Promontory, Utah. Which at this point is almost a kitsch object, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. It absolutely is. It looks like it should be on, like, yeah, you're, as a paperweight. Uh, but let me, there's one more object in the middle of the floor, and it's Martin Purrier's 1990 Dumb Luck. So in that gold room, you know, this relationship set up between these objects, these historical objects, and the paintings. What it did is it made me kind of think more about the history of gold and the history of the material. And so when I thought about the collection at, at the Anderson, I was really interested in 
you know, I always, I bring up music a bit um, because it's such a big influence in my in my life and my work. There was this uh, lyric from De La Soul, a song called Buddy, back in the '80s, and there it, this one line in their song kept refraining, and it was "Black medallions, no gold," and it was in relation to like kind of anti-bling culture. You know, kind of like, I don't need fancy things. I don't need, I can just have this like black leather medallion and that that's enough, you know, and that represents my, my culture and pride. And so I, I thought about that quote a lot and I thought the, the gold in these, the, in these infinite regress works is so powerful and people are so drawn to it. And I wanted to kind of think of this opportunity to kind of take pieces from the Anderson collection that are primarily black and center the color black in the same way. And think about that lyric because that's kind of what they're doing too. In that lyric is like, you know, in a, a community that, you know, centering something different, centering something that isn't the, the cliche of, of opulence and taking it and placing black in place of the gold. And so that's kind of the, the conceptual kind of like framework or I guess genesis of, of the Black Medallion series. And one of the things too was, I was like, where are the black artists in this collection? There's one, Martin Purrier. And where are, there's no Latinos. So it was kind of, the initial impetus was to, to kind of create uh, and Martin Purrier is to me like hands down like one of the best artists like in the world, and so it was an incredible opportunity to be like I've always wanted to have an, a, a conversation between my work and his work. I also love Louise Nevelson, and and the Pollock piece uh, that we chose is very interesting because it's a figurative piece of his, and it's you know kind of he was exposed to the great mexican muralists when he, when he created that piece that figurative piece yeah and so there was just all these interesting kind of relationships being set up so that was kind of the impetus between uh, behind uh, introducing the black into the work and that black is very much like super matte you know so it, it really is almost just like a complete infinity I want to wrap up by talking about your mural practice. You've had opportunities not only at the Hammer to do the large-scale work there, which of course was indoors, but you've done a big multi-part mural in mosaic for the New York subway, and you are making, or have made, a large-scale mural for the forthcoming Wilshire and La Brea station of the Los Angeles subway's Purple Line. For people who don't know L.A.'s geography, that is the station at the, at the southern end of Koreatown, probably almost certainly one stop east of LACMA, Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Simple question, why are murals interesting to you? I think partly the scale has been, you know, something that since working on the Hammer project really kind of kicked it into high gear. But I am interested in the legacies of, of public works, especially in Latin America, and this notion of kind of a shared public language. And, you know, there's a lot to go through in that. I think I wouldn't really consider myself a muralist. So that would be like my, the first thing I would point out. I, I have come to mural making 
as an extension of my practice. But yeah, I, I, I think when I think about the public works, I think about notions of what it means to create a visual language that is transcending a lot of identities of communities and and how does it function for somebody in their everyday? So to me, those are the things that really inspire me to to pursue it. And a lot of the artists from you know mid-century Mexico, Juan O'Gorman, Siqueiros, and and then Burl Marx in Brazil. And there's just a lot of cool overlap to me. Like I I kind of like a little bit of the breaking down of the hierarchy of like the artist has genius in their studio that shouldn't be bothered and doesn't really pertain to any and you know it's like the artist as a citizen i guess would be the short answer like i i'm interested in those ideas of the artist as a citizen interesting you mentioned wano gorman so so to view a wano gorman work you've got to hold still real still because there's a lot going on up there as i understand it your mural for the la metro is designed to be seen from a moving car yeah, because that whole corridor is being reinvented in this way that is, um, you know, we're we're standing at this point in L.A.'s history where, you know, that utopian vision of freeways and the car was everything is really coming to an end. Failed. Yeah, it's very it's failed. deeply, deeply failed. So it's important that we we think about how people are actually going to be experiencing their their lives in this this built environment. And so, yeah, in terms of the passing car, I, I was thinking a lot about like when I lived in New York, it was really fun to feel as if you could almost just teleport yourself all over the city or to other cities even just by getting going down into the subway. And so, so yeah, the, the design is very much inspired by also the deco work that's around the uh, Wilshire Corridor. So that a lot of the forms in it are, are definitely speaking to kind of this warp speed feel. Eamon O'Reilly here on. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. 
Next up, Caitlin Haskell joins me to discuss Ray Johnson, Care Of, which spotlights Johnson's work from almost exclusively within the Art Institute of Chicago's recently acquired William S. Wilson collection of Ray Johnson, which is the original archives of the International Mail Art Network, known as the New York Correspondence School. It's on view in Chicago through March 21st. Haskell co-curated the show with Jordan Carter. The remarkable catalog, and wow, what a stunner, was designed by Irma Boom. It's available from IndieBound and Amazon for about $60. Caitlin Haskell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here. Nice to be speaking with you, Tyler. This is an exhibition and an extraordinary catalog with 700 images you just told me off tape that presents the work of Ray Johnson, of course, but I think we have to start with, with someone else, one William S. Wilson III. Who was he? How did he know Johnson? And how did he make everything we're about to talk about possible? Well, you've really sort of hit the nail on the head with the observation that it's a it's a Ray Johnson show, but it's Ray Johnson sort of presented through the lens of Bill Wilson, William S. Wilson III. Bill Wilson was many things. He was one of Ray's closest friends. He was an extremely savvy and astute commentator on Ray's work. He wrote about it brilliantly. But probably if if I was going to say just one thing about Bill Wilson that's significant for this exhibition is that he was Ray's archivist in 1963 when we start hearing about a, a codified thing called the New York Correspondence School. Ray decides that Bill is going to be the archivist and is going to sort of collect and preserve his mailings. And one of the sort of wonderful dynamics in the exhibition is that Bill and Ray are almost perfect opposites, or they have sort of complementary obsessions. And as Ray is producing hundreds and hundreds of sheets of of paper and mail art and and design flyers and collages and sending them through the mail, it's Bill who's the person who's preserving them and realizing that, that they should be retained and that sometime down the road, it would be very fruitful to, to study them. And yeah, I mean, this is there, there are many ways to introduce who Bill Wilson is, but maybe one way to do that is to say, you know, he was a graduate student at Yale getting a, a doctorate degree in English when he met Ray Johnson in October 1956. And after that meeting, you know, Ray's sort of a, a fascinating young artist, Bill's on his way back to New Haven. And he said to the person who had introduced them, you know, I wish I could stay in touch. And this friend says, well, you know, if you mail something to Ray Johnson, he'll probably mail something back to you. And, you know, thousands of mailings later, you have the the archive of, of the William S. Wilson collection of Ray Johnson, which the Art Institute acquired in 2018. Other than, you know, the number thousands, is there a way we should have in mind that Wilson kept and organized and indeed sort of presented all of this stuff. Yeah. So the the three ring binder was the organizational vehicle of choice for Bill. And most of his cataloging of his collection took place after Ray Johnson's death in January 1995. So that's when Bill sort of starts this massive process of, of organizing the materials. And Ultimately, the collection is 177 three-ring binders, most of them chronologically organized by postmark. And then there, there was a collection of framed works as well. So 
79 collages were came to us as as framed works from Bill's collection. But then there, you know there's also sort of what we would call oversized material, which would be gosh, I mean it's 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 so hard to categorize Ray Johnson's work, but I think in in Bill's mind, you know, 177 three-ring binders holding the mail art and then another section of framed works, wall works, primarily collages and design flyers, I would say. And before we get into Johnson's work, it's probably worth noting that within the exhibition at the Art Institute, y'all made sure that you included a representation or a presentation of of how Wilson did that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it certainly comes out in the catalog and also in the exhibition. So in the catalog, Ray Johnson care of, there are sort of three or four different typologies of images, let's say. And one of those is sort of overhead photography of the binders, which was actually just intended to be sort of a a functional record for us before we began kind of sorting through them and and breaking them apart and making selections for the show. We wanted to be sure that everything was documented. And somewhere along the line, the brilliant exhibition designer, or rather uh, catalog designer, Irma Bohm, decided that this would be one of those elements that would give the feeling of kind of having a bit of the archive in your hand, making the book a, a portable archive and sort of giving you the feeling of of discovery that you have when you're working with the materials themselves. And then in the exhibition, in the very first space, we introduced Ray and Bill, and it's Ray in a series of photographs, modified photographs of himself from 1963, and then the binders spanning Ray Johnson's life date, so 1927 to 1995. Literally right there on glass shelves, yeah. Yeah, literally right there. And then throughout the exhibition, we have an additional six binders sort of open, kind of creating the sense of the collage-like nature of of what you find in a binder of mail art, You know how all of these disparate materials that have been brought together start to contextualize and sort of create just the, the sense of a really rich material history, all the more so because Bill has put it in order by postmark. And also he would, there's sort of an interesting mixture of primary source material, so actual pages from Johnson and others, and then Bill's scholarly work, really, um, secondary materials that he's put around them that he felt were relevant. One of the things you all do in the catalog is break this (laughs) enormous volume of material. I don't know how else to refer to it. I mean, just a ton of stuff into kind of a manageable set of, of themes and topics and and subject areas, which seems like the most natural thing on earth when when confronted with volume. And I want to zero in on on a couple of those. One of them is is Black Mountain, of course, Black Mountain College. What can we learn or enjoy about Johnson's experience with and indeed his long-term engagement with Black Mountain and Black Mountainites from both the collection and the show itself? Well, that's a great question. I, I want to actually respond at, at first to your observation that we chose this thematic approach in the catalog to slice through an enormous volume of material because that's exactly right. These terms are 21 of them and they're, they're playful. They're critical terms in a sense, but they were terms that we chose because they were multivalent and they were supposed to have a spirit of playfulness and would allow the author to interpret them variously. I should interrupt just for a quick second to say that that is completely in keeping with the spirit of the work itself, that that, that in itself is an engagement. Well, and that's, and we sort of wanted to you know, op- open this up to a really smart group of researchers and say, roll up your sleeves, play with this and 
have a conversation of sorts with Ray Johnson through Bill's collection. You know, and we all sort of, when I'm saying we all, this, this research group that included five or six of us at the Art Institute, myself, Jordan Carter, Brian Leahy, Jennifer Cohen, and then outside scholars who were already, you know, Ray Johnson experts, who, many of whom had you know, worked with Bill when he was still living and had visited his home and worked with the binders prior to their arrival at, at the Art Institute. But to get back to the particular sort of phrase, keyword that, that you chose, Black Mountain, what can we learn about Ray Johnson and, and others through Black Mountain? You know, the way that I answer this might be different than the way that, say, Joanna Gossa answered this or the way that you would answer this. But I think, first of all, there's a sense that at one point in time, you know, a, a young Ray Johnson who had grown up in Detroit was trying to be an artist in somewhat conventional terms. Now, of course, Black Mountain was an extraordinary place, and it's absolutely going against the grain to describe it as as conventional. But insofar as it was a place where one goes and, and studies, you know, with Joseph Albers, with Annie Albers, and participates in an immersive learning environment with with other students, that was something that Ray Johnson wanted to do. I mean, for me, a very provocative idea is that the, the sense of community at Black Mountain was maybe something that he was trying to, to emulate or create through a network of postal exchange. You know, when he's in New York and is you know, trying to, to make it as a young designer, as a young artist, I think there was something about the community aspect of Black Mountain that, that certainly rubbed off on him. And of course, he takes it in a very different direction. But if people get that sense, if there's just sort of a little sort of provocative tidbit that will kind of just plant that seed early on in the exhibition catalog, I'd be very excited about that. One more thing on Black Mountain. There's a terrific work in the show called or known as Untitled Strips World of a kind of field and sunset. It's not unlike a couple other works Johnson made that are in this grouping of works. And there's actually a whole bunch of abstract patterning in, in this group of works, I could come up with some kind of uninformed art historical guesses as to why that's true, but I'm willing to bet you've thought about it and have a studied answer about why there's so much kind of abstract color and pattern in, in this in this grouping. Well, I mean, th- this is one of my favorite groupings in the, in the show, and we actually have the Untitled Strips World collage and Untitled Sopranos, these two spiraling compositions hung next to each other and also beside this absolutely incredible painting called Ladder World, which has a very interesting story, which I can talk about as well. It enters Bill's collection in a a slightly different way. But thinking about these works formally and in terms of their materials, I mean, obviously, Johnson is an incredibly gifted colorist. He's worked with Joseph Albers and was very well respected by Albers as a designer and as a colorist. The thing that really comes out to me in these works is that they're cut into strips. You can see that one of the tools of creation is actually a razor blade. And so Johnson is making compositions and then he's scoring them and almost like creating remixes of his own work. Strips world, if you look at the lower left corner, you can get just get this little glimpse that it's overlaid on top of of a map. So you sort of have the regular, you know, the verticals and horizontals of a city grid, and then the verticals and horizontals of uh, sort of a first collage that's sort of the next layer spatially. And then you have the radiating arms of the strips world. 
you know, I think with Johnson and, and the level of and, and range of associations that you have, one thing that comes to mind is this sense of movement. You know, how, how do you give a sense of movement in a collage? And it's an interesting question because at this time, he's thinking about how do I get my collages to move through the world? How do I get them to be sort of a, a type of a, a social practice? And you know, if you read, you know, 1955, what is Emoticos? There's a sense of wanting to give sort of little fragmentary glimpses and set his collages in motion. And so that's that's something that I think about, you know, when I when I look at those early compositions is the implied motion that you have sort of within the composition and this idea that I, I want these to be moving, active, fast paced artworks that, you know, maybe at the at the time would have had you know, a relationship to something like a performance prop or could be reused that were absolutely part of the lived experience that he was living and working in at that moment and didn't necessarily need to be permanent, which is a very interesting thing because the collages that Bill kept, particularly the works of the early and mid-1950s, where his collection is really the strongest, were things that if, if Ray had held on to them, they very likely would have been cannibalized or metabolized and, and used in later collages, where you start to get the sort of domino-like relief in his work of the 60s and, and 70s. You write about the duck rabbit as one of Johnson's particular pet themes, forgive my punning, even if it is kind of true to the way Johnson works. Why the duck rabbit, and what does the form and the way Johnson wove words and forms together into puns really reveal about his entire practice? Well, I mean, in some ways, I mean, I just love the duck rabbit because one of the very first stories or it's a little bit apocryphal, but I, I had sort of heard that in 1969, Ray Johnson flies out to Sacramento in order to to do a performance at Sacramento State where he was going to turn a duck into a rabbit. It's wonderful because it's so preposterous, but you also start to see lots of ducks and rabbits. And of course, the documentary about Ray Johnson is how to draw a bunny. But what's interesting to me about Ray Johnson's duck rabbits is that they are stripped of all of their illusionistic detail. I mean, they're, uh, as a drawing goes, it's about as simple as you can get. And yet there's a sense of reading this culturally and sort of a, you can, you can read it as a sophisticated thing. You know, you don't have to know that this is maybe coming out of Wittgenstein and, you know, and thinking about processes of perception. You don't have to know Ernst Gombrich to, to appreciate it. It can just be sort of a wonderful sort of clipping of, of, of one thing to another. And I think that's why it's so apropos of, of Johnson's practice is that, that he loves this slippage and how one thing turns into another and whether that's you know, whether he's doing that with words and puns or whether he's doing it with images he his work thrives when you have the possibility of turning something in on itself and you know just just seeing what results from that that's a, a theme that I write about that in the, the catalog in the exhibition you know, there are a couple of places I think in the Robin gallery area we have some Robin gallery postcards where he's drawn ducks or rabbits on them. But it's, it's, it's actually something that, you know, Jordan Carter and I and our research group brought to Ray Johnson was wanting to, to think about him as someone who can sort of move between the, the scholarly or something that, that could be philosophical, but actually is really, I don't know, I guess maybe the word is not accessible, but it's democratic. It's a fun thing for everybody. All of us get to participate in this smart, fun thing. 
You know, as I went through the catalog, one of the things that surprised me, and maybe it shouldn't have, is how many bodies are, are here, how much human representation is here, from Johnson using his own mug or pictures of himself to physique mags, um, the male physique mags of the mid-20th century. Yeah, why so many bodies? How does he use representation here, figural representation? Figural representation. Well, I mean, I think part of this, I I would say, is due to the recipient. You know, the the sample of Ray Johnson's practice that we're working with is materials that were sent to Bill Wilson. And there's actually a lot of sort of body jokes. I mean, you you see Action Jackson, you know, uh, commenting on there's a little sort of like bathroom humor in some of the the mailings that, that Bill receives. But it's in some ways friendly intimacy, uh, sharing a joke. But I think there also is a little bit of an acknowledgement that Ray was a queer artist. Bill was also queer. And I think Ray just sort of enjoyed getting a laugh from Bill and in seeing that and sort of that momentary. I've I've heard about this from other recipients too, mostly men, some queer, some, some not, that you would get you know, a dirty picture through the mail. And it was just, there was this moment of, you know, being embarrassed and laughing. And I think he realized it was a way that he could touch people and get a response. But he also uses it, I'm going to try to, you know, ground these comments in some specifics. And I'm thinking about some binder images that include wrestlers and Georges Braque, for example, you know, and there's a, a mailing from January 29th, 1970, Would You Like a Bust in the Nose?, and it's the horse drawing that Johnson makes that has the names of different artists and friends corresponding to different parts of the, the horse. And then there's a Georges Brock cubist still life. And then this image of horseplay. Of course, there's the pun in horse and horse. And compositionally, the bodies and the collage, you know, are pretty interesting together. But I think there's also a sense that like, that this is life too. And that sex and art and, you know, erotics and humor are all sort of part of the material that he's drawing from and putting back into his art and his correspondence. You know, as we talk about Johnson, we're talking about things, at least one thing that art history really knows what to do with, and that's collage. But I think that a whole lot of Johnson art history hasn't known what to do with. He sits outside the isms of his time, isms that the art historical field remains far too obsessed with. And so I wonder if working on such an enormous group of, you know, body of Wilson, sorry, bad pun, of Wilson's, Johnson's work has given you new ideas about how we might consider him within the context of 20th century art or not, or or maybe we just should consider him a part still, as we kind of always have. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have, Jordan Carter and I, really tried to stay away from the isms. It's a little bit hard to do that with Bill's collection vis-a-vis pop art, because the the two Elvis collages from 1956-58 really are clearly associated with pop art and, and have a connection to that movement. But we don't we don't really say that. And when you go through the show, yeah, you know, after the first sort of main gallery of Modicos, which don't really tie into a movement at all, you then step into a space that we called paperwork. 
And that's, you know, you start to see aspects of early conceptual practices, a little bit of fluxus, but we don't really say that. And it's been interesting kind of giving tours of the exhibition and being asked that question, you know, why, why don't you say this is, you know, an early example of conceptual art that's, that's taking place here? And and I think we stayed away from it because Johnson stayed away from it. And whenever he's asked things like, do you consider yourself a pop artist? He would say, no, I'm a chop artist or a flop artist. Or you know, when, when there were interviewers who said, do you see yourself even as a collagist in the lineage of Kurt Schitter's? He would say, no, I'm a sandpaperer. And I think in the smartest, most sophisticated way possible, we tried to keep Ray Johnson on his own terms, or at least the terms that he would have accepted, if any, and present bodies of work that show all of the different ways that he was thinking about operating sort of on the peripheries of, of the art world. And, you know, that's, we have a space that's about you know, his version of happenings, which he called nothings, you know, trying to document what that was. We have a little space that is sort of the first physical realization of the Robin Gallery. I feel that one of the successes of the exhibition and catalog was, was being able to provoke this idea in readers and visitors that he connects to a lot of super important themes and through lines of the 20th century and is absolutely one of the great talents of his time. But he's absolutely not neat and tidy. And it's also interesting you know, to think about what Bill Wilson's role was as an archivist. When Ray Johnson says the New York Correspondence School has no history, only a present. Well, you've got an extremely erudite mind in Bill Wilson who decides that the way that he can best organize this is actually not through an intellectual concept, but rather through chronology. And he just takes this, this most objective mark, you know, the postal mark on the mailings that he received and decides that's what it's going to be. And then what that forces you to do in the best way possible is to treat each mailing on its own terms. And Ray will take you in countless directions if you, if you do that. Caitlin Haskell, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. Great speaking with you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.